been um, given the seal of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We've been raised to new life. We were once dead in our sins. We're now alive with Christ. We're God's workmanship. We are a new person in Christ. And then, so chapters 1 through 3 lays forth the foundation of who we are in Christ. And now chapter 4, he comes and says, Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the abounding grace that you've received as a child of God. And so what Paul's going to do for us this morning, he's going to lay forth two diametrically opposed ways of living. Two different ways of living. The old life, the former self that we used to have as non-Christians, and then the new life. The new life that we are to live as Christians, as believers, as children of God. So let's read together Paul's words in Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. This is the word of the Lord. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ! Exclamation point. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, Paul begins with the negative. He begins with how we're not supposed to live. And he emphatically says, here's the command. He says, I urge you, I tell you, don't walk in the manner that you used to walk as a Gentile. Now, when Paul says walk, he's talking about the Christian life. You remember, all throughout the Christian life, all throughout the scriptures, when it talks about the walk, it's talking about your lifestyle, the way that you live. And so Paul's saying, you have made a definitive break in the lifestyle that you used to have as a lost person. You were to no longer walk in that manner as a Gentile, as a Gentile. Now, what's a Gentile? Most of us here are Gentiles. If you're a non-Jewish person, you're a Gentile. But let me just remind you, a few months ago, when we started this journey through Ephesians, what was the type of city of Ephesus. What was it? What was the city like? Who were these people that were becoming Christians? Who were these Ephesian Gentiles? Well, we look at the city and remember there's the temple of Diana. At the center of the temple, or the center of the city, is this temple with all of this idol worship. She's a fertility goddess. You have all of these, these this, this idolatry taking place in Ephesus. And in addition to that, Ephesus was the center of sorcery, of witchcraft, of the magic arts. So people were being saved out of witchcraft, saved out of sorcery, saved out of paganism, saved out of idolatry, saved out of sexual promiscuity. This is who these Gentile Christians were that were being saved out of this life of pagan idolatry, and now they were recipients of God's grace. And what Paul does is he lays forth for us a very pretty picture, and I use that that jokingly. It's not a pretty picture. It's a sad picture of what a life is without Jesus. What does a non-Christian really look like? What's the condition of a person who does not have Christ in their lives? And he explains it. He says, first of all, they're futile in their minds. They're futile in their minds. Now, this does not mean that non-Christians don't have intelligence. 
doesn't mean non-Christians are stupid. Basically what he's saying is, is that when it comes to spiritual realities, when it comes to the truth, lost people have a darkness in their minds. They are futile in their minds. They cannot understand spiritual truth. And the language he uses here, he says they're darkened. The verb tense he uses there means an ongoing, intense, obstinate, perpetual state of being obstinately darkened in their mind from the life of God. They are alienated from the life of God. That word alienated also means a perpetual state of alienation. They're separated from God. They are alienated from God. They're darkened in their mind. They're ignorant to the truth due to the ignorance that is in them. Now, again, this doesn't mean they're stupid. It doesn't mean lost people are stupid. It just means when it comes to spiritual truth, lost people are not able to see the whole picture because God is not beautiful to them because they've been darkened in their minds. As a matter of fact, Paul, when he was preaching on Mars Hill, when Paul was in Athens, he's on Mars Hill, he's preaching to the people who are worshiping an unknown God in Acts 17, 30 through 31. Paul says this, the times of ignorance, the times of ignorance, God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed, and of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Basically, Paul's saying is that God has overlooked this times of ignorance, and now he's calling all people everywhere to repent. Now, ignorance does not mean innocence. It doesn't mean just because you don't know that you're innocent. You are still held accountable for the truth, even though you are in a lost condition. It just means that you're accountable for your sins. Now, here's the thing that frustrates a lot of Christians. Here's the thing that frustrates a lot of Christians. When lost people act like lost people. How dare they cuss in front of me? How dare they have premarital sex? How dare they backstab and backbite and and argue and and are angry and are self-righteous? How dare they sin? How dare they strut around in their pride? Now, I'm not excusing behavior of lost people, okay? I'm not excusing sin. All of us sin. Sin is sin, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. It's a sin. It's offensive to God. But sometimes I think we as Christians forget that non-Christians are just that. What are they? They're (laughs) non-Christians. They do not have the gospel. They have some major sin in their lives, and I think sometimes as Christians, we can get a little frustrated and think that they need to clean their act up in order to be around us. And we want them to get their life together so that they can hang out with us when we need to realize, did God ask us to get our life together when he decided to hang out with us? No, he cleaned us up through the cross. And I'm not saying that we just blindly accept sin. I'm not saying that we don't address sin. What I'm saying is this. A lot of times we as Christians can get very angry and frustrated and self-righteous at lost people. And what I'm saying is, is it shouldn't make us mad. It should make us sad. We should be grieved over the state of our lost friends, family members, co-workers. We need to see them for who God says they are. They're darkened. They're futile in their mind. They're ignorant. They have a hardness of heart. They are lost. And guess what? God has chosen you to be the one to go share with them the gospel, to tell them how they can be freed from that to tell them how they can be released from that prison, how through the blood of Jesus Christ, he can come and save lost people. Now, this is the the condition of a lost person. 
Paul says they're, they're futile in their minds, they're darkened in their understanding, they're alienated from God, they have a hardness of heart. This is the condition of a lost person. And if this is your condition, it leads to some devastating results. If this is who you are at the core of your being, things are going to happen. There's going to be some, some things that are going to happen. Look at verse 19. Paul uses a very interesting word there. They've become callous. Callous. In the original language, it means insensitive to pain. They have this moral apathy. They are desensitized to sin. They've gotten to the point where sin doesn't bother them. They're not ashamed. They're not bothered. Immorality doesn't shock them. They will do all manner of evil because they have become hardened in their heart. They become calloused. They become desensitized to sin. Nothing shocks them. They are callous. Now, if this is what you are, if this is your condition, then it's naturally going to flow that behavior is going ha- to follow. Who you are is going to determine what you do. And so if you're darkened, if you're calloused, if you're hardened, if you're lost, if you're enslaved, then guess what? Your behavior is going to reflect that. And that's what Paul says. Paul says because of this hardened condition, Gentile lost people will do some things that are very sinful. He gives three overarching sins in verse 19. You don't see this in your English translations, but really there's three overarching sins that lost people give themselves over to because of their hardness of heart, because of their callousness. Number one, they give themselves up to sensuality. To sensuality. That word sensuality means that they flaunt sin with no restraints. There's no boundary. They just flaunt it. There's no limits to how much they will sin. Now, I often think of Mardi Gras when I think of this word sensuality. Now, I've never been to Mardi Gras. I've seen video clips of it. And Mardi Gras may be the extreme where people, I mean, nothing's hidden at Mardi Gras, is it? It's not behind a closed door. They walk out on the streets and flaunt it. That's the word Paul's saying here. They flaunt their sin with no boundaries. They just flaunt it. Now, Paul elsewhere uses this word sensuality. In Romans 13, 13 through 14, he says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. There's the same word. Not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on, and we'll look at this metaphor in just a few moments, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And then in Galatians 5.19, when he's contrasting the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit, he says in Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. So sensuality. Number two, every kind of impurity. Every kind of impurity. Now this word just means that which corrupts, that which pollutes. It doesn't have to be sexual in nature. It can be any type of impurity, any type of, of corruption or pollution that you do in your sin. And then thirdly, you see this, the, the way the ESV puts it is it puts their greedy to practice this. That word greedy really in the original language means this, an insatiable, unquenchable thirst for sin. They can't get enough of sin. They've got to keep committing the sin. It's like they've got to keep feeding the monster. They've got to keep sinning, and they can't get enough of sinning. And what Paul does is he echoes this teaching, this devastating condition of a lost person, over in Romans chapter 1, 29 through 32. You want to hear some good news? Here's the, like the most good news verse in the Bible. Are you ready? Romans 1, 29 through 32. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but get approval to those who practice them. That's the picture of a lost person. And I think we need to remember, Christians, that was who we once were before God saved us. And that's what your lost friends are, are enslaved to. So it shouldn't surprise us when they do sinful things. They're just acting out of their nature. Now, we don't excuse it. We don't put up. We don't, we don't, we don't say, okay, that's just the way they are. We, we address it. We deal with it. But we've got to understand that behavior comes out of a heart that is dead to God, an obstinate heart. Now, if this describes you this morning, what, I, what I've just said describes you this morning in graphic detail, then I think you may need to stop in your tracks and ask a very serious question. The Bible says examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. If this describes you, now not that you don't sin, I'm not, I mean all of us sin, but if this describes you in graphic detail, the totality of your life, you may need to ask the question, am I truly saved? Am I truly a believer? If this describes who I am. This is who the Ephesians were, and this is what all of us Christians were to some degree before we were saved. Now, I said to some degree, okay, here's the issue. Not every lost person is going to be as depraved as they could be, okay? Total depravity doesn't mean that you're as sinful as you could be. I believe there's degrees of depravity, okay? There's the Hitlers of the world, okay? Most of us in this room would not be a Hitler. And then there's those that commit sins, and they're, 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 there's a continuum, I think, of lost people. Well, there's going to be those that commit some grievous sins. There's going to be those that don't commit some grievous sins. And, and here's the issue, the scary thing about it. In all of us, without Christ, there lies a seed of sin. And if given full effect, will give full birth to the worst kind of sin. If not for God's restraining grace in a person's life, all of us have the seed in us to commit the worst of sins without God's grace. And so Paul says, this is who you used to be. Do not walk in the manner of a Gentile, in a pagan type of lifestyle. And then in verse 20, he's got this strong adversative. And adversative just means a, the word but. Very strong in the original language. But that is not the way you learned Christ. That's not the way you learned Christ. Now, that's a very interesting term, the way you learned Christ. Why does Paul say it that way, you learned Christ? There's a lot of things we can learn in the Bible. We can learn about God. We can learn the Ten Commandments. We can learn His laws. We can learn facts and figures. But this is the only time in the Bible where it says we can learn a person. This is not how you learned Jesus. Now, what in the world does it mean to learn Jesus? Jesus. Oftentimes the Bible talks about receiving Jesus or accepting Jesus or trusting Jesus. What does it mean to learn Jesus? Well, I think if we look at the parallel statement that Paul has over in Colossians, Colossians and Ephesians are really parallel books. They're both prison letters of Paul, and there's a lot of things in Colossians that show up in Ephesians and vice versa. But we find the parallel statement over in Colossians 2, 6-7 that may give us some insight. Paul says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So here's what I think it means, what you learned Christ. 
It means that the moment of your salvation, when you were saved by grace, you entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the person of Christ. You entered into a personal relationship. He is your Lord and Savior. And as such, you want to learn everything you can about how to please Jesus. You want to submit to him. You want to love him. You want to serve him. And ultimately, the goal is that you want to be more like Jesus. So when it talks about you learned Christ, it's just Paul's way of saying you've taken Christ as your master. You've taken him as your Savior. You've taken him as your all in all. You have Christ at the center of your life. And that should describe all of us who are Christians, that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And Paul says, assuming here, and he's not using the word assuming as if it didn't happen. It's, it's really, a, in verse 21, a stylistic way of saying, you heard about him. You were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. He's basically saying, there was a moment in your time, Gentile Ephesians, where you heard the gospel, you heard about Jesus, and then you received Jesus. You believed that he is the truth, that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Jesus. And he says there's something that's very definitive that's happened to you as a Christian. He's saying there's some things that have happened to you that are very definitive when you crossed over from being a lost person to a saved person. And what Paul says next is hotly debated. Spent a lot of time in debate, a lot of time in study this week. There are two camps, great scholars on both sides, right down the middle, that take a stance on what Paul's about to say. And they're all within each, you know, whatever whatever camp you want to look at. And so I've studied the, the, the Greek text I've looked at the context, I've read all the commentators, I've spent time in prayer, and I've come down to my stance, okay? And I think it helps me, and I'm going to have to give you just a little bit of Greek this morning, okay? So I don't want to bore you, but I'm just going to give you just a little bit, because I think it makes sense to understand what Paul's saying here. He's saying three things happen as a result of you being in Christ. If you look at verse 22 through 24, to put off the old self. That's number one, to put off the old self. Number two, to be renewed in your minds. And number three, to put on the new self. So here's the issue. Here's the issue. Is Paul telling us to do something? Is he Paul commanding us to put off the old and put on the new? Is this a command that Paul is saying, you must do this? Or... Is it something that's already happened to you at salvation that you're to look back upon and say, that's already happened to me, now I need to live in the reality of it? Those are your two choices. Paul is either commanding us to put off and put on, or he's saying, this has already happened to you in your salvation, live like the truth that's already happened. Now, here's the issue. The first and the third, put off and put on, these are in snapshot action verbs. Okay, they're actually, it's actually an infinitive, but it's in the aorist, which means it's a point in time, snapshot, one time action. Put off, put on. One time event. The middle one, renew your mind, is in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing, continual, perpetual action. So here's where I take it. Here, here's where I come down on this. I do not believe these are commands, the first and the third, the first and the first and the third, the first and the third. I do not believe those are commands that we are to do. I believe those are things that have already happened to us. In our salvation, when we trusted Christ for salvation, at that point in time, our old self was put off and our new self was put on. That's a done deal. And what Paul's saying is that happened to you. Now, the middle one, 
That's the one I think that we need to focus on. That's the one that we need to be doing. That's the continual action. The continual action is to renew your mind, to be in a process of renewing your minds. Now, let's look at each of these individually, okay? Because put off self, renew your mind, put on new self, okay? Put off self, put on self. Those are in one snapshot, one-time events. The middle one, renew your mind, is an ongoing action. So let's look at these a little bit in more detail. Put off your old self. Paul says you've been taught, you learned Christ to put off the old self. What's the old self? Well, it's just exactly what he's been talking about in those verses up there in verses 17 through 19. The unredeemed, unregenerate, lost person that you were, Paul says, that life has died. That life has been buried. Who you used to be, that former way of life, you've put that off as a garment. You've taken that off. Now we find the parallel passage to this in Romans 6, 6. Paul says, we know that our old self, sometimes I think the King James says our old man, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So Paul says, your old self was crucified. When you trusted Christ for salvation, the old is gone, the new has come, that life has died. It's no longer part of who you are. It's your old self. Colossians 3, 9 through 10, the parallel passage in Colossians. Paul says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So here's the issue. In our salvation, the old self was put off. The person that we used to be, the lost, unregenerate, lost person has been gone away with. But here's the issue. What does Paul say about sin? Notice what he says in verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Deceitful desires. Do you realize that sin is deceitful? What does sin do? Sin promises something big, but then what does it deliver? It doesn't deliver on what it promises. In the end, it ends up being empty. And it's deceitful. We have been corrupted through deceitful lies. You know that word corrupt? really means to be seduced, to be led astray. It was often used to defile a virgin or to seduce a woman. Satan seduced Eve. Look at 2 Corinthians 11.3. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We see the same word, this word deceive, corrupt, led astray in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Okay, here's the issue. As Christians, let me just talk to Christians here for a moment. As a Christian, you struggle with sin all the time, don't you? And if you're not nodding your head, then you're, you're committing a sin right then because you're lying, okay? <laughs> we all struggle with sin. And behind every sin is a lie. A lie that Satan wants you to believe about that sin. Now let's look at these scenarios that we talked about at the very beginning with these made-up people and their struggles with sin. Okay, we'll keep coming back to this. Frank. Frank struggles with pornography. Now there's a lie behind pornography. The lie behind pornography is that God is not enough for Frank. 
that his wife is not enough for Frank, that Frank cannot find his satisfaction in Jesus. He has to find satisfaction elsewhere to find power, to find purpose, to find meaning, to find pleasure. It is found in the lie that pornography is going to offer him something that his wife or Christ cannot offer. Or what about Michelle? She struggles with bitterness. So she's believing the lie at that moment that God is not sovereign to take care of her. God is not good. That she believes the lie that she has to take vengeance out on her ex-husband and that he has to suffer and it's her job to make sure that he suffers. Or what about Ron? Ron struggles with anger. He believes the lie at that point that he has the right. He's entitled to have everything work the way he wants it to and everybody else is incompetent. Everybody else is inept. He is in control of his life. He believes the lie that he has the right to be angry. Or what about Melanie, the gossip? She believes the lie that she's not really doing that big of a deal. I'm not gossiping. I'm just giving about information. I'm just sharing a prayer request. You ever notice that? Gossip through prayer requests. I'm not really doing that much harm. She wants to make herself feel better by being in the know, by putting other people down. Or what about Darren, who struggles with materialism and greed? He believes a lie at that moment that Christ is not enough, that he needs to have stuff to make him feel like he's worth something. And all sin stems from a lie. And here's the lie. The lie is simply this. Sin is better than God. There's something out there that's better than God. Now, I'm reading a great book right now, and men, just be prepared. In our men's study, we're going to do this book next. It's by a guy named Tim Chester. He's out of England. It's called You Can Change, God's Transforming Power for Our Sinful Behavior and Negative Emotions. And what he gives in this book, and it's been, it's been very challenging, he gives four truths that we need to believe about God to combat the lies that we often are enslaved to. Because all sin is based upon a lie, then how to combat sin is to believe the truth about who God says he is. And he says there's four life-changing truths, and they all start with G. Number one, he says God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Number two, God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. Number three, God is good, so we do not need to look elsewhere. And number four, God is gracious, so we do not have to prove ourselves. You see, here's the issue. When we sin, Christians, we are actually becoming idolaters at the moment of our sin. Now, let me, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but most Christians in this room would never say, I'm an atheist. Would we? We'd never say, I'm an atheist. Theologically, in our minds, we know who God is, right? We know the truth of Scripture. We know who God is. We know what God says, he, what God says about his word. We are not atheists. We are not idolaters in theology, are we? But when it comes to functionally living our lives on a day-by-day basis, how many of us become functional atheists, functional idolaters? In our day-to-day lives, we put things above God, and we become idolaters. Even though theologically we know God is God, but when it comes to living our daily lives, we put something ahead of God as an idol, and we put it in our hearts. There's a scary passage of Scripture in Ezekiel 14.3. It says, Son of man... These men have taken their idols into their hearts and set them, and set the stumbling block of their iniquities before their face. Can I just say this morning that, 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 that some of us may be in danger of taking idols into our hearts. And when you have an idol and you take it into your heart, that's a very dangerous place. Because what happens when it goes into your heart? It gets dark, just like what just happened right there. What did Martin Luther say? Martin Luther said this is a good definition of idolatry. Martin Luther says, A God, lowercase g, a God is whatever we expect to provide all good 
and in which we take refuge in all distress. Whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in, that I tell you is your true God. That's your true God. Now, here's the second little thing Paul tells us to do. This is the one we're to continually be doing. Our old self is gone. We've put off the old self. Here's what Paul says in the present tense to continually be renewing our minds. He says it right there in verse 23. And to be renewed, present tense, to be continually, ongoingly renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now we also see this in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What does it mean to renew your mind? It means to daily, or maybe moment by moment, saturate yourself with the scriptures, saturate yourself with the things of God, preach the gospel to yourself on a daily basis, so that you are renewing your mind to believe by faith the truth of who God says he is, and not believing the lies that sin has to promise you. Now let's see how this would play out. Let's, let's just take a journey through these, through these make-believe people of how, if they start combating sin with renewing their minds, how it would look. Okay, Frank struggles with pornography. How is he going to renew his mind? Well, he's believing the lie, remember? He's believing the lie that the pornography is going to give him something that God doesn't. What does he need to do? He needs to, by faith, look to Christ and say, Jesus, you are more valuable, you are more supreme, you are more enjoyable than anything this pornography has to offer me. I need to believe, at this moment, Frank needs to believe that God is good. So he doesn't need to look elsewhere. He needs to focus his mind on the truth that God is good and nothing else is. What about Michelle? When she's tempted to be bitter, when she's tempted to get frustrated, when she's tempted to want vengeance on her husband, she needs to believe the, God, the, the, the truth that God is great. So she doesn't have to be in control. You see, she wants control of the situation. She needs to renew her mind to believe that God is great. God is in control. God is sovereign. God takes charge. I can trust in a sovereign God. What about Ron when he struggles with anger? God needs, Ron needs to believe that God is gracious. He doesn't need to prove himself. Now think about Ron for a moment. Ron is angry because he expects everybody else to get their act together. How would that happen if Jesus treated us that way? What if Jesus was perpetually angry with us and said, you've got to get your act together, so you better do it now. Would any of us be saved? None of us would be saved. He needs to believe the truth that Jesus was patient with him on the cross. Jesus saved him in his sin, and he needs to believe the truth that because Jesus was patient with me, I can be patient with others. I don't need to be angry. Or what about Melanie? When she struggles with gossip, you know, what, you know what the root of gossip is? It's the fear of man. She fears man. She wants to look better than others. She wants to put herself up better than others. She fears the approval. She needs the approval of other people. She needs to have her self-esteem bolstered by other people, and so she does everything she can to meet that need to make herself look better because deep down she has a fear of man. She needs to believe that God is great and God is good. I don't need to fear man. I need to fear God. And then what about Darren when he struggles with materialism? He needs to, at that moment, believe that God is gracious. God is good. God satisfies everything that this materialism cannot satisfy. So you see, here's the issue. When you struggle with sin, it's a daily battle for truth. It's a daily battle for truth. Because here's what's going to happen. 
Sin is not going to lie dormant. Sin is not going to stay still. Sin is going to come bombard you. It's going to come with its lies. It's going to come with all of this deceitfulness. And you at that moment have got to renew your mind through the gospel to believe that God, that Jesus Christ is greater than anything this sin has to offer. And let me just say this, that is a process. Do not hear me say that's going to instantaneously happen overnight. It may by some miraculous thing happen, but for most of us, it is a process. It is gradual. It is brutal. It is draining. It is one of those things where we have to be more and more like Jesus. That's a matter of fact, that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. What did he say? And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord whose spirit. Now notice the contrast Paul uses here with the mind. The mind. He first of all talks about the mind of a lost person. Their mind is unregenerate. Their mind is lost. Their mind is darkened. They cannot grasp spiritual truths. They cannot renew their mind. But in contrast to that, he says, Christian, because you put off the old self, you can renew your mind. You can have a new mind. You can have the mind of Christ. And here's the issue. We've got to be continually renewing our mind. Because here's, here, here's a little newsflash. If you haven't already experienced it in your life, guess what? Just because you're a Christian, does that mean sin goes away? There's a thing called the flesh. Some writers call it indwelling sin. It will gnaw. It will be there. It never sleeps. And if you do not renew your mind, you will find yourselves trapped in those patterns and behaviors that are embedded in your flesh. So you've got to be daily renewing your mind. And then Paul says finally, you've put on the new self. Like a garment, you've put on the new self. Point in time action. At your salvation, you are a new person. You, you, the old self, the old, the old man is dead. It's been crucified. You've got a new self. You're a new person. You've got a new identity. We are new creations in Christ. Remember what he said back in Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship. We've been recreated. And notice what Paul says here. He says, you've been created after the likeness of God. Now, what does that mean? We've been created after the likeness of God. Here's the question. What is God like? If we've been recreated after the likeness of God, what is God like? What's the chief characteristic of God? Well, Paul says it right there. Righteousness and holiness. God is righteous and God is is holy. And so here's the issue for us as Christians. Because we've put off the old self and because we put off or put on the new, we are in this daily battle to be renewing constantly our minds, to to not believe the lies of sin and to believe the truths about God. And here's what happens. The more you do that, the more you begin to walk in holiness the more you begin to walk in righteousness, the more you get to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. What does Peter say in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16? He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Almost the same wording that Paul uses there, their former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, how can we be holy? Well, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 sums it all up. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old is gone. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Is this something God calls you to do? Does God say, okay, make yourself new? No, you can't make yourself new. It's happened to you. If you're a Christian, you're new. 
If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, you are a new creation in Christ. Whether you feel like it or not, whether you know it or not, whether you have all the theological terms in your head or not, you are a new creation in Christ. You've been born again by the Spirit of God. You are adopted into God's family. You are a new person. And here's Paul's bottom line. This is the point that Paul is trying to say. You are a new person. Just live like it. Live like who you really are. You're not a pagan. You're not a sinner. You're not enslaved to the passions of your lust. You are not in former ignorance. You are not that anymore. So don't live like that. That's not you. You are a new person. Now live like who you truly are. You are a new person. Walk in righteousness. Walk in holiness. Continually renew your mind. Be who God says you already are. That's his point. Now let me make it real practical this morning. Make it real practical. I'm going to go from preaching to meddling, okay? You ready? Every single one of you in this church this morning, just because I don't know what they are, but I know from human nature, I know from observation, I know from my own personal life, every single one of you has some besetting sin or sins in your life this morning that you struggle with over and over again. I don't have to tell you what, you, what they are. You know what they are. There is a constant gnawing sin that you deal with over and over and over again. And you should be nodding your heads, not because you're proud about it, but you should be nodding your hands because, yes, I'm there. We all have sin in our life, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about that particular sin that you're struggling with this morning. Let me be real personal. It may be pornography. It may be bitterness. It may be lust. It may be greed. It may be materialism. It may be lying. It may be deceit. It may be anger. Whatever is that one sin that you struggle with, And sometimes you feel so defeated, I'm never going to beat this thing. I'm always going to be enslaved to this sin. I cannot get out from this sin. All of us have felt that way before, that I can't shake this. It's got a grip on me. Let me tell you the truth of the gospel this morning. It does not have to have a grip on you because you are not that anymore. You're a new person in Christ. And God can forgive. Let me tell you, I don't don't want you to leave this place thinking there's no hope. There is hope in the gospel. If you're struggling with a sin this morning, welcome to the club. All of us struggle with sin. I don't want anybody ever to mangle to think that we've got it all figured out. We're perfect. We're righteous. We don't struggle with sin at this church. None of us struggles with sin. Let's just get that out of our minds right now. We need to be real. We need to be honest and say we are all struggling with sin. But let me give you the hope of the gospel this morning. Let me give you a verse. 1 John 2, 1 through 2. Hear this verse this morning and let this verse penetrate your hearts. John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, Paul, John's saying, I don't want you to sin, but if anyone does sin, and the way the Greek translated there is almost like, and you are, you can kind of just put in the blank there, but if anyone does sin, and you probably will, here's the issue. This is what I want you to hear this morning. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know what an advocate is? An advocate's one that comes and stands beside you in your place and defends you and pleads your case. And he's a propitiation. What is that word? That's just one of those big words that means Jesus died in your place suffering the wrath of God that you deserved as the righteous one so that he can present you back to the Father and say, this is my child for whom I've died. 
he is or she is innocent. So let me just tell you this this morning. If you're struggling with the sin, and you maybe have struggled with this your entire life, go to the cross of Jesus Christ and just say, Jesus, you're my advocate. I cannot clean myself up. I cannot do enough good deeds to somehow outweigh the bad deeds. My only hope, Jesus, is because I'm a new person, the old is gone, the new has come. Because I'm a new person, I come to you by faith, Jesus, and I confess that you are my advocate. Would you please help me? Would you please forgive me? And guess what Jesus does? Does he stand with arms closed and say, no, stay away from me. You're too unclean. You're a sinner. No, Jesus says, my child, I died for you. My child, my blood dripped off that cross for you. And you don't have to sin. You don't have to be enslaved. You don't have to struggle because I've set you free. By faith, come to me and receive forgiveness. So what I'm going to ask you to do this morning is to bow your heads just for a brief moment. And I want to just make four statements to you and then I'm going to ask you to spend some time in prayer. These are statements that I pray that you believe in your heart this morning, not just with your head, but you believe these in your heart of hearts by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit that you believe these four statements. And let me just say these four statements to you. Number one, do you believe that Jesus is great? Number two, do you believe Jesus is glorious? Number three, do you believe Jesus is good? And number four, do you believe Jesus is gracious? And if you do, find forgiveness and grace at the foot of the cross today. Spend some time in prayer asking the Lord Jesus to show you his grace and to really do a work in your heart this morning to deal with sin. Maybe some of you have never have dealt with your sin this morning. Maybe you've dealt with it the wrong way. Maybe you've covered it up. Maybe you've tried to push it out, but you've never just come open to the Lord and said, I need you, Jesus. Would you please transform me? Just spend some time this morning in prayer asking the Lord Jesus to transform you, and he will.